I see my role as a truth teller. I see my role as a black man in America who has every right to be able to come on television every single night, give his point of view and tell people the news. And I, I do believe, Margaret, that I speak for people who are the underserved people in our society, for black and brown people, for women. I do think that I have that responsibility. Otherwise, I'm not living up to what my ancestors fought for. That's Don Lemon, author and trailblazing CNN primetime anchor. I'm Margaret Hoover, and this is the Firing Line podcast. I spoke to Don about his new book, which takes a hard look at racism in America, drawing on his personal upbringing in Louisiana and professional experience at the anchor desk. Unlike some anchors of old, he has a point of view, and he's not afraid to share it. We talked about his stinging criticism of President Trump. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is racist. A lot of us already knew that. Something that has made him both infamous. So I watched this guy. He's terrible. He's not a smart person uh, at all. And famous. And his perspective that the woke can be part of the problem. Some people are so woke they need a nap. And I think sometimes that um, people become so uh, dug in to their position that they become uh, intolerant. He is fearless in the face of his critics and has a take you might not expect. Don Lemon, welcome to Firing Line. Margaret Hoover, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Listen, you are a personal friend, a colleague at CNN, and we have known each other for several years. Your new book is entitled, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. It weaves together your upbringing in Louisiana and your personal experiences with broader moments in American Black history. And you write about some really personal experiences with racism. Tell me about them. Well, I mean, which one? I write about my experiences being a journalist, especially over um, the last couple of years with the previous administration and um, you know how that felt being attacked by the person in the, the highest office in the land, meaning the, the world, the biggest platform. Uh, and I write about uh, just shopping while black and just sort of living while black. I talk about my experiences being a black man who happens to be gay in this country, but I also um, try to offer solutions and uh, give people ideas on how to fix uh, this problem or how to make it better, because I don't think that we'll ever completely solve the problem of racism, just as we want sexism or, or any other ism or phobia in this country, in the world. You distinguish between what you call, quote, cartoon white supremacy, which is embodied by sort of the KKK and the Bull Connor Southern sort of 1960s racism with the, quote, innocuous mashed potato racism we swallow every day without chewing. Mm hmm. Yeah, until until you realize it has razor blades in it, right? Um, and then and then it's a real problem. Uh, the way that we are socialized, the way that I've been socialized, the way that most Americans have been socialized, it's in the the form of um, of white people having the preeminent voice, history being told from the perspective of white people. And right now, quite frankly, kids aren't really learning about the true history of the country. I didn't when I was in school. And I went to, a, Margaret, I went to an all-black uh, Catholic school. And I didn't, I, my parents thought I was getting a great education, and I did, but I didn't get great history lessons. Uh, I learned, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Okay, fine. But there are also other things and other people who helped to contribute to this country. There were people who are, are, were of African descent who were here before the Mayflower. The Native Americans were here. So all of that should be included because our history, and this is just an honest assessment, and I think people realize that it's been taught to elevate some 
and denigrate or lower others. And the elevation has been for people of European descent or white people and the denigration or the lowering of history or, or of, of, the, of the at least the presence in history has been uh, mostly black and brown people and of Native American people. And I think we need to fix that because America is a big place. There are a lot of people who helped to create this country. There are a lot of people now who are helping to shape this country and all of our history, histories need to be included. The title of your book is a nod to James Baldwin's classic, The Fire Next Time. How has Baldwin influenced you, Don? This book, uh, The Fire Next Time, has had the biggest impact on me as far as um, race relations. James Baldwin had the biggest impact on me as far as race relations and um, sexuality. He's a gay black man who was this profound, maverick, literary genius giant. And so that book opened my mind uh, and my heart, really, to new and different and more inclusive ways of learning about racism and also dealing with it, not, not necessarily accepting it, but trying to figure out how I navigate through the world uh, under the constraints or, you know, that I have here in this country. So in 1965, Baldwin participated in a famous debate with William F. Buckley Jr. Yeah. Uh, of course, William F. Buckley Jr. was the original host of this program, Firing Line. We should and do the that, proposition. Margaret. We should. Uh, we, well, we need. We not need, so sure I'm going to take Buckley's position here. <laughs> but we need more of that. But go on. I'm sorry. I didn't. I don't okay. mean to interrupt. Well, but I, no. What I was going to say. Let's do do. Let's do a debate. Although the debate of this proposition was the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. Mm -hmm. Take a listen. Take a listen to this. One's response to that question, one's reaction to that question, has to depend on effect, an effect on where you find yourself in the world. In the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, it comes as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. So much of that debate and the themes in that debate are still relevant today. Yeah. That was 56 years ago, but we're still talking about race today. So what, what is your reaction listening to Baldwin say those words? Well, I, you know, I think about the, the time that we're in now um, where we're seeing, we have seen people um, march on the Capitol and uh, try to take over the government and threaten to kill lawmakers and probably would have, or if they had the opportunity to do so. I think about that and I think about the American soldiers, black soldiers who come home or came home from war and um, weren't able to vote, uh, weren't able to get education, and they weren't able to get housing. And that's what, during that time, that is some of what was going on. And now, during this time, we have um, people who are, uh, whose uh, right to vote or uh, their access to the voting booth is trying to be restricted uh, in this time. So the country that is supposed to offer us all the opportunities, equity and equality, that country is still trying to take a fundamental right away from us. It's the same thing that's happening now with criminal justice, the same thing. People are fighting for that as well. They want to be treated equally under the, under the law. They don't want to be uh, abused by police officers. And so I think that you're right. The same things are happening. But I think in this time, I would hope, I would hope that a William F. Buckley would have evolved in this moment. Uh, I would hope that James Baldwin would have evolved in a sense to what was happening now. So while I think it is still relevant, 
I think that the times are different and I think the conversations might be different. I think that there is an acceptance of people of color in this country by more people than then, but still fundamentally, black people in the country don't really have equity, don't really have equality. And again, I go back to history. Kids should be watching that. They should be learning about James Baldwin and William F. Buckley in these debates, and they should be learning about the history of this country. If you do that, if you just teach that, then you don't get people operating on the assumption, which is basically what James Baldwin was saying there, that the country was built in their image. And therefore, everything in the country, all the rights that go along and freedoms that go along with that come through what? A white gaze is what basically what he's saying. And we we need to fix that. We still need to fix that. It's better, but I still think we need to fix it. Do you write that you are, quote, done with the debate over necessity of reparations and you want to discuss actual proposals? Are politicians who support a commission to study these issues, is that passing the buck or is that a sincere step towards progress? Well, I think it can be a sincere step towards progress because you, you have to realize that you have an issue and then figure out how to address it. And I don't know why it's so hard uh, for people to um, even discuss the possibility of reparations. Because how do you know unless you discuss? You don't really know unless you have, I think, a, um, uh, a fulsome approach to the problem. And that has to include everything. So you may come away at the end of the day saying, um, well, I'm against, I'm still against reparations. Or you may come away at the end of the day saying there needs to be reparations, but I don't know if it should be in the form of a payment. Maybe it's paying it forward instead of giving people checks. So what would be included in reparations proposals that you could be supportive of? Well, I think that if you, if you read the book, um, we talk about the wealth gap in the country. And um, I talk about how, um, how African-Americans over centuries have not been allowed to, to uh, accrue wealth in the country. Maybe it means contributions to um, historically black colleges and universities. Um, maybe it means uh, providing healthcare to an, an, an equitable way to African-Americans. But again, this is just a start to study. I don't think anyone has the 100% the, the, the expertise on how to deal with this issue because it has not been truly studied. And if you do that, then at the end of the day, we have some tangible information uh, that we can work with and possibly some tangible resources that we can work with to see if reparations, if that is even possible in this country. You know, Evanston, Illinois became the first city in 2019 to vote for a concept like this. And it is it was a $25,000 payment to black residents for a housing program if they could prove that they had lived in an Evanston between the early 1900s to the mid 20th century. Is that the kind of program that could fit within this rubric? Yeah, I, listen, I don't know if that works um, nationwide, but I mean, if we're just coming off the, the anniversary of the, the Tulsa massacre. And when you look at what happened in Tulsa and many other cities around the country, including in, in Chicago, if you look at what happened with eminent domain, how those communities got disrupted by eminent domain, by building interstates through uh, town, taking um, uh, property uh, and from viable black neighborhoods and taking it away from them or putting an interstate right through it, which means stores closed, businesses closed. So I think you can take an example from that um, and 
try to figure out if it works nationally. But again, we don't know until we study the problem. You don't know the solution to a math problem until you what? Until you sit down and actually figure it out. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Tulsa because President Biden became the first sitting president to visit the site of the Tulsa race massacre on the 100th anniversary over Memorial Day weekend. And your book focuses on largely forgotten massacres in places like Wilmington, North Carolina and Levy County, Florida. Why was it important to you and, write and, about these horrific events? And Louisiana, the German coast uprising. And I keep going back to history and I, and I keep going back to education. I know it's it's in a weird way. And I didn't think about it as I was writing this book that we would have be having such a big debate, Margaret, about critical race theory. And that's not my thing, right? Critical race theory is something that I think I'll leave people who are more knowledgeable about it to argue for or against it. But what I do know is that someone who is a student of American schools is that we didn't learn any of these things in American schools. We didn't learn about Juneteenth. We didn't learn about Tulsa. We didn't learn about the German coast uprising in Louisiana. And why is that? That is all part of our history. So anyone who is saying that that should not be taught is just quite frankly ignorant and is in denial about what America truly is. That is, again, that is how you get an insurrection is by people who don't know their history, people who don't have knowledge of exactly what this country is supposed to be and what it was built on and actually the history of the country. Because again, if you operate from a place of knowledge, you don't get people um, trying to uh, kill lawmakers because they think an election should go their way because they believe the country was built uh, in their image and therefore they should be able to get the president they want even if he's not the duly elected person. Do you think they would have thought differently about the big lie and listened differently to Trump with a fuller history, a fuller sense of history? Of I this think country? if you get a fuller sense of history, then you start to see other people's people's humanity. You start to see that it's not just you and people who look like you who are um, who who are entitled to the fullness and the richness of America. It's not just you. Then you then you begin to understand that people aren't taking away anything from you that this is a shared America for all of us. So no one is taking your jobs. No one is taking your neighborhoods. No one is taking money that's owed to you. If anything, if you think about the true history of the country, you might wonder why people of color may not be thinking, well, when as we were talking about reparations, wait a minute, where's all this money that's owed to me for all of this time that my people were not able to vote? or my people were not able to get jobs, or my people weren't able to live in neighborhoods where they were, um, where you were able to live. If you think about it, for the most part, white people have had access, even if they, even if they are poor, right? And I know that this is a tough statement. At least you've had the ability to be able to vote. You've had the ability to be able to get an education. And for the most part, it has been tough. It may have been tougher if you're poor to be able to get a loan or be able to build wealth. But then if you were if you were allowed to build that wealth, people didn't just come in and take it from you or burn it down like Tulsa, like Louisiana, like Florida. So if you think about history in a fuller, more holistic approach, chances are you see other people's humanity and you see that this country is a shared country and not just for people who look like you. You invoke the late Congressman John Lewis many times in your book. And Lewis was a guest in 1974 on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. 
He had, of course, been beaten badly in Selma when he was marching over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, the same year Buckley and Baldwin debated. Now, Buckley's first question was about the right to vote. Listen to Lewis's response. I think we have seen some changes in the South uh, since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The polling place, the ballot box, in a real sense, has become not just a place for the white man, but it's become a place for the black man, particularly in 11 southern states. Before 1965, there were less than 50 black elected officials in 11 southern states. Today, there are more than 1,400. In many parts of the South, we had very few registered black voters. Today, there are more than three and a half million. So black people see the ballot box as their means, their instrument toward freedom and liberation. Yes. In 2021, is it still true that the ballot box is key to freedom and liberation for black Americans? Yes, because if you if you aren't able to change people's hearts, as it has been said, at least you can change their behavior. And it is taken for granted by many people in this country that the right to vote um, is fundamental and that it, it will always happen. But as we see um, uh, happening across the country, that right to vote, that access to the voting booth is is in danger of being restricted, especially for black and brown people. And so, yes, we see, a, I'm a black person, we see the right to vote as access, as freedom, as equity, as equality, as a fundamental right as an American, not just an African-American, but as an American. Why would you pass laws that people can't vote on Sundays after church? Because you have souls to the polls, that you can't give a little old lady food and water in line. Why would you uh, uh, prohibit drop boxes and try to limit uh, places where people can vote? Wouldn't you, as a patriot, as a patriot, want as many people as possible to be able to vote without any restrictions? That, that seems like what America should be about. But every time, if you look back in history, if you look at what happened after Reconstruction, when black people started to gain political and economic um, equity or equality, it has been, there have been efforts to take it away. And that is exactly what is happening down now. The party that you belong to, I think you're still a Republican. I think you're, I know you're a conservative, but I don't know if you're still a Republican. The party. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I mean, I still have an R by my name. I, I haven't become a Democrat. I'll tell you that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, but right now, yeah, people no, aren't Republican buying what that party is selling. Moving, that's exactly right. Republican legislatures are moving to pass laws across the country in the name of securing elections and, and, and preventing future voter fraud because of a big lie, which is that President Trump is insisting that the election was stolen from him, something that we all know is not true. Look, I'm curious as a journalist, right? How do you go about covering? How do you think about your role as a journalist when you're covering these voter integrity questions and voter access laws? Yeah. And do you think that there is a space for journalists to be also activists? Yeah, I think there there's a space for activist journalists. I'm not an activist journalist. I just I'm I, I'm just a truth teller. I'm just someone now who um, a journalist who doesn't believe in um, uh, giving uh, the same weight to lies and disinformation as I do with truth 
and information that will help um, the American people. I think that at the end of the day, my job is to inform people uh, and especially during a political seasons to make sure that we have an informed electorate. And so how do I see my role? Um, well, I mean, let me ask you this question. If you look around the media landscape and just let's just look at primetime and cable, how many people do you see look like me? Right. And so when people criticize me and they say, yo, Don Lemon's a race baiter or Don Lemon is, you know, focuses too much on race. Um, I, I, I look at that and say it's BS. And and it's people trying to silence my voice or people who don't want to hear my voice. There are people who don't look like me, which is 99% of the people who are on television, especially in cable, who don't look like me. It is okay for them to give their point of view and their opinions and to, to say and, about America and criticize America and to criticize politicians and anything else that's happening in the news and in the world. It's okay for them to do it. But when I do it, I am somehow deemed a racist or a race baiter or, you know, whatever other epithet they want to call me. And so, so do you think you're held to a different standard because you're a black man on cable? Like absolutely. a different yardstick is applied to you? Of course I am. People are not used to people like me having the position that I have or being in positions of power or seeing people in um, uh, it, with this degree of visibility speaking on issues that affect the country, especially every single night in prime time. That's a lot for some people to take. Uh, I think people are getting used to it, but yeah, I do. I mean, so you asked me how I see my role. I see my role as a truth teller. I see my role as a black man in America who has every right to be able to come on television every single night, give his point of view and tell people the news just as it is the right for Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or a Lawrence O'Donnell or um, a Joe Scarborough or anyone else to, to be able to come on uh, television and speak from a position of authority, I feel that I can do the same thing. So that's my, I, that's I, my role. And I, and I do speak, so I do believe, Margaret, that I speak for people who are the underserved people in our society, for black and brown people, for women. Um, I do think that I have that responsibility. Otherwise, I'm not living up to what my ancestors fought for. Two hours a night, every weekday, you sit behind the anchor desk, and I want to show the audience some of the things that you said during the Trump presidency. Oh, boy. You are the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States of America, the greatest country on Earth. Act like it. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is racist. A lot of us already knew that. The president of the United States is a fraud and a con man. I've heard you say, I've heard you describe when you're, when you're telling the truth, that you're, you're telling the news, you're telling the truth, but you're also doing it with emotion. Mm -hmm. When you interject that emotion and you call the, United, the president of the United States a con man, how is that different from the emotion that Fox News interjects when they're covering Biden? Well, because I'm coming from a place of truth. Um, because when I say that the president of the United States is racist, I went on after that to give the evidence, right? And to give the proof of that and to talk about his history of racism in the country. Um, I could have started, I, I probably did with the, the housing discrimination uh, lawsuit that he and his father faced. I could have done the Central Park 
five or the exonerated five. I think I probably went on uh, to talk about his role in birtherism. Um, and, and, and so I gave the evidence of that. When I say that the president of the United States is a fraud and a con, that was looking at his taxes and how he and his history of um, litigation and not paying people. These are all facts. I don't do opinion. And I know that the, the difference for me is I do point of view. So I'm giving my point of view as an American, as a black man who happens to be gay, but I'm through that lens. But I'm also I'm, I'm also I also represent CNN. And so I must tell the truth. And if I don't, if my facts are wrong, then I have to clarify it and I have to come on television and I have to apologize. And I say I got that wrong. So that is the difference between what I'm doing and what someone, as you mentioned, over at Fox News is doing. I'm operating from a place of truth. It's all based in fact, and it's all based on the evidence that's out there. As you, do you think, as you reflect on the media landscape, that there has been a loss of objectivity in the news across all outlets? Or do you think perhaps there's a new form of objectivity that involves reporting the news with emotion, as you say? Well, I think that there are still places that you can go. I just think that there are more places to go to now. And that doesn't mean that there's a loss of objectivity. It just means that, that there's more. So, I mean, look, there's still um, firing line. There's a, you can you can still get Lester on NBC every night at, at 630 or wherever he is in, in whatever time zone that you're in, whatever time it airs. You can still get, you know, the first, what, maybe 20, 30 minutes of the morning show is fact based and then um, at least a broadcast. Um, I just think that there are more places to go. And so therefore, people are saying there's a loss of objectivity. There's just a lot more people giving their opinion and being unobjective. So you took some heat in 2013 for comments in a CNN segment about the five things that you thought black people should do to fix problems in their communities. Here's number five. Pull up your pants. Number four now is the N-word. I hosted a special on the N-word suggesting that black people stop using it. Now, number three, respect where you live. Number two, finish school. And number one, and probably the most important, just because you can have a baby, it doesn't mean you should. Um, you said in a recent interview that you don't regret the comments, but that you've become a better communicator. What would you communicate differently? I think it may have given people the impression that that was if you only did those five things um, that, you know, and that I was somehow scolding black people. Um, that's not so. But also one has to realize if you are giving uh, critics uh, ammunition, and so I think I would probably take that more into consideration now, especially then I didn't have the voice that I had. I didn't have the platform that I had. I was, you know, a weekend anchor uh, on CNN. Now I'm a primetime anchor. And I think there's more of a responsibility to take to to take under consideration more factors. And um, we're in a more divisive time. So I think I would be more judicious about what I chose to elevate and how I chose to say it. Yeah. So is the Don Lemon of 2021 an evolved Don Lemon in, for sort of a new time Yeah. from the Don Lemon in 2013? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but I think the same thing has happened to Margaret Hoover and many other people. Yeah. I mean, if you live long enough, you evolve, right? And circumstances change and you, you see things sometimes more clearly. Um, yeah, of course. You recently commented on this transformation or the evolution of Don Lemon. Uh, in the Washington Post. But you also push back a bit against this notion that you weren't, quote, black enough before. What is that all about? 
You know, I, I don't know. I think that, um, well, I do know, I should say. I think that people, again, just as, you know, the majority culture in, in the country weren't used to seeing someone like me um, speak with authority, with a platform, the platform that I have. I think black people weren't used to seeing that either. And I think, you know, whether it's right, rightfully or wrongfully or whatever, I, I think black people do have um, different standards for me. They see me as someone who should represent the entirety of black culture. And whether that's fair or not, hey, listen, it, it doesn't really matter. I accept that. That's the position that I'm in. And I'll take the slings and arrow arrows. I'll take the criticism. And if they are right in any sense, I will course correct. And so I think that if they don't think that you're acting the way a black person should act, then they deem you as not black enough, which to me is silly. I think there's room for, you know, all kinds of thinking for black people. If black, that black people want to be conservatives, I'm not a conservative, I, but I think if they want to be conservative, then they can be. They should operate from a place of truth and they should know their history just as white people. Uh, I think if, you know, if whatever it is that black people want to do, or however they want to think, they should not be limited into thinking um, that they should be or act a certain way just because they're black. But again, they should be operating from uh, a place of knowledge and truth and not just from talking points that they've developed because someone has told them on television uh, or because that's their particular ideology. You wrote in your book, quote, racism is a contagious assailant. Many who consider themselves woke are still part of the problem. When it comes to actually solving the problem, they are no more helpful than the denialists. So how do you describe woke? I, well, I, I think I, I didn't write in the book, but I said some people are so woke they need a nap um, because you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to become what you fight against. And I think sometimes that um, people become um, so uh, dug in to, uh, you know, their position that they become uh, intolerant. And so you don't want to be in, you don't want to be intolerant. You want to offer people grace. I think. Um, uh, to some, woke means um, understanding where um, marginalized people stand in this country and that they they need uh, a hand and a voice. And I think to others, it is a criticism because they want to be able to get away with saying or doing anything. They want to be able to be racist or bigoted with impunity or sexist with impunity. So they use this sort of wokeism, uh, the term woke. Uh, as a way to to be able to criticize that and, and, and to be able to say, I need to be able to say whatever I want. And if I can't say that, if I can't be bigoted, if I can't be sexist, then someone is trying to silence me and they are just too woke. I don't think that that, I think that's accountability. I don't think that's wokeness. So I don't really like these catchphrases, uh, but I think there's a, enough criticism of is wokeness, quote unquote, gone too far. I think that, that is a, a real discussion. But I also think that people on the other side need to realize it's not just wokeness, it's accountability as well sometimes. How have you seen wokeness as intolerance? Well, um, we need to allow people to be human. Humans are fallible. Humans make mistakes. And if humans make mistakes and, and they uh, rectify them, then I think that people should be allowed to come back into polite society. I think that's, a whole, that's, you know, that's the whole point of, you know, people talk about criminal justice reform. Well, let's just say that someone does come in contact with the criminal justice system and they go away and they make restitution and they pay their dues, then should they come out of jail or prison or whatever it is, or probation, and not be allowed back into society? Then what did they do it for? What was the whole point of it? 
If you're not going to believe that someone should be reinstated in society or is able to come back into society after they have paid their dues. And so regardless, whatever the situation is, whether it is, you know, whatever it is, if someone truly apologizes, if they confront the situation and if they they handle it in the right manner, I think people should be allowed to eat. I I think that people people do change and that there should be room for change and for evolution. And, And so when people are too woke, they don't allow that. And so everyone makes a mistake. And so if you make a mistake, let's just say you're a person who's, you know, quote unquote woke, you make a mistake and you realize, damn, I made a mistake. I'm sorry for it. What do I need to do to fix it? Do you want to be remain in the dungeon or do you want to be defined by that mistake your entire life or career? No, that's what I mean by too woke. Anti-racism is another topic that is being hotly debated. And, you know, its principal proponent is a professor and best-selling author, Ibram X. Kendi. And he thinks that people, ideas, and policies are either racist or they're anti-racist. And he writes, quote, The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. I I wonder, Don, what is your reaction to this idea of of whether, is there any kind of discrimination that is okay? No. (laughs) No, I don't think there's any kind of discrimination um, that is okay. And, And no, I just don't. That's a very simple answer. As one of your friends, Don, what would you want me, your friend, and a white woman to take away from your book most? Uh, I think we all have biases. How can you come out of American soil and not have biases about different races and different ethnicities? It's just who we are. But that doesn't mean that we can't all get along and fix those problems or at least work to fix those problems or become better people. Um, and, and what I would want to get out, the main thing that I would want people to get out of it, especially someone like you, is to... Um, to see other people's humanity, to see black people's humanity. That's it, it's just as easy as that. Get to know someone who doesn't look like you, who is not in your same circle, who doesn't go to, you know, not in your same carpool, um, you know, thing from school or not in the same um, baseball league that all of your kids are in and they all look alike. Like get to know other people who don't look like you, who don't think like you, who don't have the same religion as you um, and don't live in a bubble. Because people always talk about, well, you know, it's the elite that live in a bubble. Maybe so. But I think average everyday Americans live in a bubble as well. And usually that bubble looks just like them and thinks just like them. This weekend is Juneteenth. Yes. It is the date that celebrates the end of slavery in the United States. And the Senate this week unanimously passed a bill making Juneteenth a federal holiday. It has taken 156 years. But what should this mean to us as Americans? Well, um, you know, after taking 156 years, it's hard to say that, you know, it means that it's progress, but it does mean that it's progress. That progress is slow. Um, But it means finally that we are, again, learning the history of the country and that we are actually celebrating and respecting the history of the country and that uh, and that we can all um, that we can live in a country where we realize that there were um, not so great things in our past that happened and we can acknowledge them and we can move forward. And the best way to, to acknowledge, the best way to do that is to acknowledge that they happened, is to acknowledge that slavery happened, to acknowledge that there was an end to slavery, to acknowledge that it took two years for people in the South to even realize that 
they were emancipated. And so all of these things that, that people are fighting for now uh, about the removal of statues or learning about uh, Confederate um, um, uh, images and Confederate statues and, and um, figures in our past, that we all need to learn about those things and accept them, acknowledge them, and that is the way to move forward. Don Lemon, you've written an enormously important book and your friendship has also been elucidating and an important point in my life. Thank you for joining me on Firing Line. Thank you. I look forward to hanging out with you um, the old fashioned way and just sitting down and having a drink or a coffee and just talking about the world and life. Mm-hmm.